Turn your Bibles tonight to Psalms chapter 84. Psalms chapter 84. And I guess I'll flip this one on here, Nick. And uh, we drop that one there. It, uh, just a lapel. Got a lapel there. All right. Psalms chapter number 84. And uh, let's begin reading in verse number one. You all sound like you're still digesting a little bit. Are you digesting a little bit? It'll kind of seem like maybe you are. Psalms chapter 84, verse number one. The Word of God says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusted in Thee. Let's pray together. Father, we love You tonight. What a blessing to be in Your house. Pray that You'd speak to the hearts of Your people tonight, Lord. I pray that work for eternity would be done in our lives. And I pray that we'd have our hearts open to Your truth, that we'd be obedient unto it. Lord, I'm thankful You love us tonight. I'm thankful that You sent Christ to die on the cross of Calvary for us and demonstrated that love to us. Lord, I'm thankful that that love is able to be made a reality as we accept Christ as our Savior and we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. We live and dwell in the love of God. I just thank You for loving us tonight. Help us to love You better. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we've moved through Psalms 84 the past couple Sunday nights, and if it's the Lord's will, this will be the last... Uh, message, a sermon that we spend in this psalm, uh, in this series, we have been following a singular thought, and that's that Psalms 84 is a song of pilgrimage. It tells the, the story from a poetic standpoint of a pilgrim that's traveling from their respective home, wherever that might have been, and is going to the city of Jerusalem to the temple of God, or uh, the word used here is the tabernacle, which of course was the, the tent. It was the temporary place of God's dwelling before Solomon built his temple. They're going to that place and they're going there to keep a feast and to sacrifice to God and to meet with God. And uh, they're going there that their spiritual relationship with Him might be nurtured and furthered and that they might perform their duty unto God. Uh, much of the language contained in about passing through the valley of Baca. These are geographic places that it's talking about and uh, where it talks about, uh, you know, going into the house of the Lord. And it's a place where the birds had made nests and the swallows had laid their eggs beside the altars. They're talking about a physical, literal place that existed at that time in history. But we've also recognized this to be true, that the... Old Testament Jew traveling from their city, their home, uh, to Jerusalem and to the temple or tabernacle, they were indeed making a pilgrimage. 
Do you know the New Testament uses that term pilgrim as it regards the believer? In fact, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. God says the life that you and I live as a Christian is a pilgrimage in and of itself. Now, we might say, well, preacher, how is that? And I, I sort of thought about three ways. The first we've already mentioned, uh, that this psalm presents the pilgrim journeying to the physical place of worship. But you know, there's another way in which we're considered a pilgrim. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about the Old Testament saints being pilgrims and strangers and uh, that they were seeking a city to come, a heavenly city that is built by God. Certainly, it's true that Inasmuch as we are in this sojourn of life, but if we're saved by the grace of God, we have a certain determined destination. We're going to the heaven of God. If we die before Christ returns, we're going to the heaven of God. We're going to be in the presence of God, at the throne of God. We are headed home. We're on our pilgrimage to the presence of our heavenly Father. So we could say that we're a pilgrim in the sense of a pilgrim journeying to the eternal heavenly home where we're going to go and, and be with the Lord in His presence. But I think what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 2.11 that we read a moment ago about abstaining from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, he's talking about the pilgrim in the sense of a man journeying to a spiritual place of communion with God. You know, that's what the Old Testament saint was doing. They were going to a place they could meet with God. Now, I'm thankful to report to you today that uh, God has made us His temple. The New Testament says that ye, meaning born-again people saved by God's grace, that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We are the temple of the living God. God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, has taken up residence in our life if we have been saved. But certainly, it could be said that all of us ought to be striving for and journeying towards a life lived more fully in the presence of God, in the sense of worship and of fellowship. We ought to be trying to make more like Jesus Christ. We ought to be trying to get closer unto Him. We ought to be trying to spend more time in His presence. And it's that thought that I want us to think about tonight. And we followed it all through uh, this psalm. So when we read through this psalm, we find it is a pilgrim psalm falling into three distinct portions. And God made it easy for us. The Holy Ghost made it simple. He divided each of them with that musical word, Selah, which means to stop and pause and meditate and think about it. Don't ever forget that the Psalms are a book of songs. Amen. They're a book of songs that were written for the purpose of public worship. And so uh, each of these portions is divided by that musical term. The first four verses, verses 1 through 4, uh, present to us the pilgrim's hope. In other words, the longing of the pilgrim, what the pilgrim desired and what their ambition was in life. And then verses uh, 5 through 8 present to us the pilgrim's experience. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the life of the pilgrim. What's it, what it was like to be a pilgrim. And certainly for you and I, I mean, there's a, there's a Christian life. I'll tell you this, if your Christianity has no life, you have no Christian life. It ought to be more than just Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, it, it ought to be that we have a, a relationship with God day in and day out, lived in sincerity before the Lord. And then finally, tonight we'll spend a little time talking about the leaning of the pilgrim. And you say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, a pilgrim's faith in the Lord and what, what they're leaning on Him, why they trust in Him. Can I tell you, you can trust God tonight. He's trustworthy tonight. You've probably had folks betray you in life. I have, and probably everybody's experienced that. You've probably had folks hurt you in life. And I've been through that. A lot of people have, but can I tell you, the Lord's trustworthy. He'll never betray us. He'll never break a promise. He'll never let us down. He is trustworthy. So why did the pilgrim make this journey? Well, he made it because he was trusting the Lord to carry him there. 
And he had a desire to be in the presence of God, much like the believer does today. And so I want you to notice four simple thoughts with me tonight, and then we'll go to the house. First off, look at verse number 9 with me. It begins this way. It says, Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointing. You know, sometimes I think when we read through the book of Psalms, we just read it as one sort of musical note, one sort of poetic strain. We just read it and we kind of, we say, well, what is it? Is it a prayer? Is it, it is a complaint? Is it a this? Is it a that? And if you're not careful, you'll say, well, it's, it's just a psalm. But the fact is, when you read through the book of Psalms, and each psalm in particular, most of the time you'll have a, a variation of different types of speech and communication. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this verse nine is a prayer. It is not just a religious invocation. It is not just a a statement of religious truth. It is a prayer. He's asking God to do something. He's asking Him to look upon the face of thine anointed. I want to say this is the pilgrim's cry. In other words, in our life, your life and mine, what are we asking God to do? Well, the first thing he asked God for was for the faithful protection of God. He says, Behold, O God, our shield. A warrior doesn't trust anything more in battle than he trusts to his shield. His success may depend upon his sword, but his life depends upon his shield. You know, in your life and mine, God is our protector. He's our shield. He is the one that protects us. Now, you might say, well, preacher, listen, bad things happen. Most assuredly, they do. You live around, you hang around long enough, something bad will happen to you. But none of that happens and escapes the mind of God. Nothing of it escapes the providence of God. The pilgrim in making this journey, man, he was making a dangerous journey. One like it is today, you get in your car and eight hours later you're at your destination, you ain't stopped for nothing but gas and beef jerky. I mean, at that time when a person traveled, it was an experience and it was something that was beset by dangers and, and, and by peril on every side. We read that in Luke chapter number 10 when the good Samaritan helps a man that has been fallen upon by bandits. Why did that happen? Well, because it was fairly common at that time. So the pilgrim in making this journey, he recognizes it's a dangerous journey. And if he's going to make it, he's going to need the protection of God. Can I tell you, spiritually speaking in your life and mine, if we're going to be what God desires for us to be, if we're going to end this life closer to God, a better specimen of Christianity of what God desires for us to be, looking more like Jesus Christ, we need God to do it. We can't do it on our own. We need His protection. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, I've got the protection of God. He protects me when I drive. He protects me when I work. And and that's true. Uh, He most assuredly does. But I'm not talking about protection from physical peril. Certainly God is capable of that. But how often do we recognize the danger of spiritual peril? Man, everywhere. You understand how many people get out of church? You understand how many people get messed up? You understand how many people that used to walk with God wind up over in the ditch somewhere because they got bitter, they got angry, they got hurt or something happened? You understand you and I ain't better than those people. It could happen to me just like it happened to them. And the only thing that keeps it from happening is the grace and goodness of God. I'm in this life a better Christian than I am at this moment. It'll be by God's help or it won't be at all. He's the one that provides protection. So he cries for the faithful protection of God. Number two, here's what he says. He says, look upon the face of thine anointing. Now, this is interesting to me because we understand, and I think the psalmist understood that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at one time. And God is omniscient. He knows all things at all times. In fact, I think you'd have to... I think you'd have a real difficult time defining God in a way where He's not beholding things everywhere all the time at the same time. 
The Bible tells us that his eyes are upon the wicked and upon the righteous. He beholds all things. So the fact is, he was already looking at this uh, pilgrim. So why does the pilgrim pray that way? Well, because this language means more than just the training of the eyeball upon someone. Rather, it means to bestow upon him your favor. What he's saying when he says, look upon me, is he's saying, turn your attention and turn your favor and turn your blessing upon me in my life. He knew that God was watching, but here's what he wanted. He wanted to be able to tell God was watching. There's a difference between the two. You ever been sitting somewhere and you just got the heebie-jeebies and you turn and somebody's staring at you? That ever happened to you? Uh, You know what we call that? We call it creepy, number one. But number two, you know what that is? That's their felt presence. You're just, you're aware, man. You know somebody's looking at you. And the psalmist, I think, he he is smart enough to know and understand. He's spiritual enough to have learned that God sees all things at all times. So when he asks God to look upon the face of His anointed, what he's saying is, I want I, I want to feel your presence in my life. I don't just want to, and, and I'm going to say it this way. Listen, I, my faith is is rooted, uh, my, my spirituality is rooted in faith and not feelings. It's rooted in the truth of Scripture and not whatever feelings I may have or I may not have. But let me tell you, God created you and I with feelings. And I, I listen, I'm going by faith and not by feelings, but it don't hurt nothing when I can feel my faith either. There's nothing wrong with being able to have peace in your heart and your mind. And somehow in, in our attempt to try to ground people upon uh, the very scriptural Word of God, which is a good thing, we have dismissed the fact that the peace of God is a reality too. It can reign in our hearts. It can rule in our hearts. We don't have to walk around this world in torment and in angst all the time. We don't have to walk around in fear and in terror all the time. Part of the legacy, part of the heritage, man, part of the inheritance of the child of God is the peace of God. We can have peace in our hearts. The pilgrim, he's praying, he's saying, Lord, I want, I know you're looking at me, but I want to know you're looking at me. I want your felt presence in my life. And you know, that's what our desire should be. We should be asking God, Lord, not just walk with me, but walk with me and let me know you're walking with me. Walk with me in such a way that I can tell you're in my life and I can tell you're working and and let, let our fellowship be real and let it be vibrant. Let it be something meaningful and something I don't have to wonder about or speculate about. Let it be real and alive in my life. That's what the pilgrim is crying out for. So we see the pilgrim's cry in verse number 9. But then look at verse 10 with me. I like this. It says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. We have here the pilgrim's clarity. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, he's talking about what he values in life and why he values it. What you value determines something about how you perceive the world around you and where your value system rests, not just on certain matters, but on all things. Uh, People that are obsessed with money are obsessed with money because they think a lot of money. People that are obsessed with Jesus are obsessed with Jesus because they think a lot of Jesus. The fact is, what you value is going to inform what you do and who you are. What did the pilgrim value? Well, he appears to have clarity about some things. First, I note that he's got clarity about the best use of his time. He says, a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. This is something that I think is pertinent to the day we're living in. Where wholesale time seems to be the greatest commodity irrespective of how degraded the quality of it is. We live in a day today, and I want to be careful about how I do this, mainly because I don't want to go off into the ditch and it'd be easy for me to do it. 
But we live in a day today where we're willing to give up everything that makes the next five minutes worth living for the next five months. We're willing to give up everything that makes life meaningful for the next five minutes. We're willing to give it up for the promise of another five months. We've lost all perspective of what the quality of how we spend our time is. And just raw seconds ticking by on the clock is all that matters to us anymore. I saw a thing the other day on Facebook. You, you'll let me share something on Facebook, right? Uh, I, I saw something the other day. A guy posted something. He said, you know, it's funny. He said, one of these days, a year from now, we're going to reach into our jacket pocket and we're going to pull out that mask and we're going to smile and we're going to think, boy, I tell you, that seems like forever ago. He said, right before we load another stripper clip into the SKS and go down into the valley to try to forage for food before the bands of cannibals set in at nightfall, right? And uh, his point being that we're on a slippery slope, but one of my preacher friends said something that I thought was good. He said, still better than tyranny. Still better than tyranny. In other words, if that's how we had to live, still better than tyranny. Here's what I'm saying tonight. I'm saying not just that we live, but how we live matters. What our quality of life is, is meaningful. There's a great many people that are walking dead men around. They're walking around in misery and in hollowness and in emptiness and the whole world washes in grayscale and nothing has purpose. But you know what the psalmist learned? He learned it'd be better to have just one day, one day in God's courts than a thousand anywhere else. He acknowledges the best use of our time. You know what the best use of your time and mine is? What would a pilgrim have been doing in the court of God? Well, he would have been worshiping God and he would have been working for God and he would have been praying to God. He would have been spending time with the Lord. And here's what he says. It would be better for me to have one day, just one day, but spend it that way than have a thousand days and never spend any of them for God. Uh, you've heard this before. It's, it, it's cross-stitched on wall hangings and pillows and quilts and everything else. But the famous quote, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. How are you and I using our time? Time's something we don't get back. You understand that, right? We have a finite amount of it in this life. And the pilgrim, part of the reason he's making that journey, undoubtedly a pilgrim would have had responsibilities at home. He wasn't a full-time pilgrim. He would have been a farmer. He would have been a craftsman or a tradesman or any number of things. And undoubtedly there was work going neglected while he was making his pilgrimage. But here's what he reckoned. He reckoned all those things can wait. What matters is that I get my relationship with God in order. Your life and mine ought to be focused upon how we spend our time for the Lord. And then he says this. Look at the end of verse 10. I like this. He, he, he's got some clarity about the best use of his time. But then he says, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. No more lowly responsibility would have existed in a palace uh, for the most part than of being a doorkeeper. Somebody just opens the door and closes the door. I don't know if him cats are unionized, but I wouldn't mind having that job. Somebody say amen to that. Seems like all you're doing is standing there opening the door and closing it all day. But uh, what he's saying is this, it's a lowly position. But he says, I'd rather be lowly in the palace of God than to be at the highest place of exaltation, prominence, and achievement in the devil's economy. He recognizes the best use of his talents. And he understands that a man can squander his God-given talents away on meaningless things. Now, life is full of business. Life is full of responsibilities. Yours and mine both. We have things we have to do. God expects a man to work. God expects a man to, to take care of his family. God expects a man to, uh, you know, take care of his friends and be a help to them. 
And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But here's the problem. There was a time in the heart and mind of Christians when we viewed those things as a means to the end of living for Christ. I work a job, but the only reason is so that I got food in the pantry so I can keep going and do something for God. I, I, I take care of my family because it's my responsibility and duty not only to them, but primarily to the Lord. All these things are a means of an end of trying to live my life for Jesus Christ. You know the problem is we've lost the end, but we still got the means. We have uh, jettisoned all of the meaningfulness of life, and that's part of the reason society is spiraling into the rapid decay that it's in. You have entire generations of rootless, purposeless, meaningless lives that are just floating around like balls in a pinball machine and bumping into each other. and They're wondering why life even exists, why they're living. This is what happens when a society tries to rip God out by the roots from their civilization. But you know, the psalmist, he recognized an important thing, that it is not in the world's economy It's certainly not in Satan's economy, but it's in God's economy by which we will be reckoned. And it's in God's economy where true value lies. And so he says this, I would rather take the lowliest position there is if I can do it for God than the highest position available if I'm not doing it for the Lord, if I'm doing it for wickedness. There is a proper use of our talents. Whatever they may be, we can use them for the glory of God. Our energy, our treasure, our time, all of these things ought to be invested in the things of God. That's why the pilgrim took his journey. That's why he didn't stay at the house. It would have been easier for him to stay at the house. But he took the journey because he thought there was something more valuable than simply existing. He could have stayed home and planted another crop and reaped another harvest and done more work and there would have been nothing wrong intrinsically in those things. But he's walking a higher pathway because he recognizes there's more to life than just surviving. He ought to be doing something meaningful with purpose. And there's no higher purpose than the courts of our God. So we see the pilgrim's clarity. Then I want you to notice with me the pilgrim's confidence. Look at verse 11 with me. Here's what the the psalmist says. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Again, the question being, why is the pilgrim taking the journey? What's he trusting in? What is he leaning upon? What's motivating him? What's pushing him? And the first thing I see is his confidence in the Lord's hand. He says that God is a sun and a shield. That's interesting language. It speaks to me of two things. One, that he can give light in the darkness. That's what a sun does, right? It gives light. S-U-N, sun. It gives light in the darkness. Enough so that it can bathe your whole world in sunlight, give you a new way of looking at things and a whole new perspective. Now, the pilgrim probably acknowledges that he's going to go through some hard times, but he says, listen, I don't just have a lantern. I don't just have a lamp. I don't just have a flashlight. I've got the sun himself dwelling with me. You know, it's an amazing thing, but I've seen God in his grace do it. Take people going through the darkest times of life, and it's almost like they're living immune to the suffering and sorrow they're going through. Now, I'm not saying that'll be your experience or or mine. Sometimes God's doing something through the sorrow and through the suffering. But I've seen God take people. It ought to be, I mean, I mean, fraying at the end and, and, and falling down, broke down, nerves all to pieces, but have the perfect peace of God in their life when they're going through dark times. And it's almost like there's all this darkness around them, but it's like they're walking in the sunshine. You know, the pilgrim is saying this, I recognize that though dark my path may be, I have the very Son of Righteousness 
walking with me. God has the ability in our lives to give us peace and joy even in the hardest of times. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Nahum, the joy of the Lord is our strength. How does God expect us to have strength for the journey if He won't give us joy in the midst of it? That tells me this, God has a desire for us to have joy. He told His disciples in the New Testament, He said, I'm going to give you joy and your joy shall no man take. And your peace shall no man take. In other words, he's saying this, I'm giving you these things, they're safeguarded in your heart and in your life. No man can by force take it from you. You have to forfeit it. Tells me this, when we lose our joy, we've left our joy. When we lose our peace, we've left our peace. Now, I'm not saying it's always easy to have uh, let the peace of God rule and reign in our hearts and minds. I'm not saying I'm better at it than you are. I'm just saying we have the possibility, we have the the ability, we have the option always before us to walk in the strength and joy of the Lord. So the psalmist says he's a, a son. And then number two, we sort of, we sort of hit on this a moment ago, uh, but the psalmist says not only is he a son, he's a shield. He said this in the opening verse, this portion of the psalm, verse nine, behold, O God, our shield. And he, and he reiterates it. When I think about the son, I, I think about the fact that God can give light in the darkness, but then I think about the fact that he can give shelter in the battle. That's what a shield really is for. A shield traditionally throughout human history wasn't just for, for typical mild hand-to-hand combat. It was for the day of battle. That's when a man carried a shield with him when he was going into, into pitched warfare, when he was going into, into armed conflict with, a, with an opposing force and he'd carry a shield to protect himself. It tells me this, if you've got a shield, at least what the psalmist is talking about here, if you've got a shield, there must be a battle. Amen? If you've got a shield, there must be a battle. Amen. Go ahead. If you got a burp, burp. Say amen too. Thank you. Not only can he give light in the darkness, he can give shelter in that battle. You're going to have battles in your life. Sure you are. I do. You will. We all will. The only folks that don't ever have battles is the ones that run from it. You're going to have battles in your life. And in those moments, you need to be reminded that God has the ability to shield you from the dangers that you're facing. I don't know if you know this, but it's scary to try to live for God in these days. Now, it's not the scariest time in human history. I, I, they could. They might bust in here and rope me up, throw me into an arena with wild beasts, but I'd highly doubt it. They'd probably have to find one first. Amen. And, uh, but, but I, I understand. I'm not trying to make it seem like it's the worst time in human history, but I'm just saying for those of us with families raising kids and, and, and wanting to see God do something in their life and, and looking at a long future in front of us, it can be a scary time. And it gives me great peace to know God's just as strong, just as faithful as ever He has been. So I see that His confidence in the Lord's hand. Number two, I see His confidence in the Lord's help. He says this, and this sort of goes hand in hand, really, with it. He says, the Lord will give grace and glory. Now, there's nothing else really we need in the Christian life. Once we've had the gospel, after that, all we need is grace and glory. Now, what do we mean when we say grace? Well, of course, grace means God's riches at Christ's expense, a little acronym that's given for it. That's, that's pretty accurate. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's God doing things for you and I that we don't deserve for Him to do for us, but He just does them out of the abundance of His love because He's so gracious, because He's so good, because He's so faithful. He does those things. And you know, that's, that's how our life exists, is in the grace of God. I, I don't know. I, if God had never done anything for you, uh, he, you, he still wouldn't owe you nothing. Wouldn't owe you nothing if he had never done anything for you. But man, we'd all have to admit that uh, even what he did when he saved us, we'll never be able to repay. 
And a long time has passed since we've quit taking down marks of the goodness of what God's done in our life because we thought we could repay Him. Truth is, every day you and I live, we've lived in the grace of God. We've lived it because God has permitted it. Man, people better than you and I have not survived the days we're living in. People better than you and I have have had tragedy and sorrow befall them. I reckon we're here for a reason. Somebody say amen to that. I reckon we're here for a reason. I reckon we ain't just here by accident. could be God wants to do something in our life. But I'll tell you this, God's doing what He's doing by His grace. Not because we deserve it, but because of His grace. The pilgrim recognizes that God gives grace for his journey. And we need the grace of God day in and day out. You mess up like I mess up. I mess up all the time. You do too. And if you don't think you do, uh, we'll just have a meeting and we'll talk about that. Amen. We'll, we'll, we'll take a poll. <laughs> you might find out that your opinion is a little better than somebody else's. But, I, I, you know, we all need the grace of God in our life. You're going to mess up and I'm going to mess up. But you know, God in His grace, Paul said it this way, or God said it to Paul this way. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient. It's sufficient. Now, that doesn't mean it's just barely enough. It means it's more than enough. So God gives grace for this life that we're living in. I'm glad God deals with us in grace. If He dealt with us in justice, we'd all be snuffed out in a moment. If He dealt with us in mercy, listen to what He'd do. He'd spare us, but He'd leave us. But here's what He does because He deals with us in grace. He not only spares us, He forgives us. He he gives us a home in heaven. He positions us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He calls us a child of God. He gives us a relationship with Him. In fact, the book of Ephesians says He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Hey, listen, I'm thankful there's coming a day that the justice of God will be meted out righteously. And I'm thankful for the mercy of God. Certainly He's been merciful. But can I just say praise to His name for the grace of God tonight? Because were it not for the grace of God, my life would be a complete mess. He gives grace for the journey. But then I notice this. He says He gives not only grace, but He gives glory. And glory is one of those words in our in our plastic microwave society we live in that seems to have lost much meaning. And I think part of the reason for that is we're blessed to live in such leisure and comfort. And I don't begrudge that. I'm as soft as the rest of you. Amen? But there was a time when glory was a meaningful thing because as life was beset by hardship and by conflict, the ability of a man to overcome and to triumph was a meaningful thing. And at that time, when it speaks of the glory, it's speaking of the acclaim and the and the applause and the acknowledgement and recognition that that person would enjoy when they had overcome something of great difficulty. They'd be crowned with glory. Uh, they would be glorified and, and praised and magnified because of that. And here's what the psalmist says. God has the ability to give glory to the pilgrim. Now, when's he talking about it? The Bible says about the Old Testament pilgrims that they were persecuted, that they were sawn asunder, that they were, that they were hanged, that they were crucified, that they were everything else that could be imagined, that they suffered, and it says this, of whom the world was not worthy. Uh, evidently, they didn't get glory in this life. But you mark her down, the second they stepped into the very presence of God, everything they had ever done for God was, was made mention of. They received glory in His presence. I don't know what the rest of our days are going to look like. I've quit guessing. I told somebody the other day, I took that crystal ball I had and threw it away. Gave it away in a yard sale because it didn't seem to work. I don't know what the days that lay ahead of us hold, but I do know there is a day when we'll stand before God. And if we'll live for Him, we won't ever regret what we've done for Him. For on that day, those that have lived for Him will be crowned with the glory of their dedication and service unto Him. So I see the Lord's help and then I see the Lord's heart. I love this. He has confidence in the Lord's heart. He says, no good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. In other words, He's saying, I know God and God wants to bless His people. 
Now, sometimes that blessing does not come in the way that we wish it did. Uh, sometimes we struggling, we want God to just sweep in, fix a problem immediately. And sometimes the blessing He bestows is not in that way. Sometimes He does greater than what we're looking for. But the, so the, the, the psalmist here says, I have confidence that in the Lord's heart, He desires to bless His people, to bless the pilgrim. Can I say this? God's not sitting up in heaven with a thunderbolt in His hand just waiting to strike us down. He loves us and desires for our life to be a meaningful life. It's amazing how cruelly men and unfairly men ascribe things to God. They'd love to have the idea that God is mad at them all the time and yet He's displayed His love for us through the cross of Calvary. Now I understand that God is offended and angry at wickedness. And certainly God desires for wickedness to be purged from our life and that can't be done until we've been born again by the grace of God. Even then, we'll always have a sin nature. But I understand God is angry with wickedness, but you mark her down. God loves humanity. He loved the world and gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in your life and mine, as we're born again by the grace of God, as we know God is our Savior, from that moment forward, God has every desire to bless us in every way possible that He can. Now, you say, preacher, I, there's areas of my life God hadn't blessed me. Well, probably if we looked at it, maybe through God's eyes, we'd even say He has blessed us. But all right, I'll go ahead and take that for granted. And I'll say this, there are a few reasons God might not be able to bless us. Uh, for one thing, His blessing may not be the blessing that we're looking for. And He may be blessing us, but we're throwing His blessing right back in His face. Sometimes, like Paul, Paul asked God to take away that thorn in the flesh and and Christ answers back. God answers back and says, No, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, I will therefore glory in mine infirmities. Talking about his weakness. Man, the thing that he asked God to take away, he said, I'm going to glory in that. I'm going to rejoice in that. I'm going to praise God for that. He said, For when I'm weak, then am I strong. He said, I will glory in mine infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's what he learned. The very thing he was begging God to take away was the very thing that God was getting most glory out of in his life. The very thing that he was begging God to take away was the thing God was using more than anything. So God was blessing Paul, but not in the way that he desired. But then I would say this, inasmuch as God desires to bless us, that blessing is always to an end. And that end is always to make us more righteous. It's never merely to fill our bank account or to fill our closet or to fill our garage or to uh, you know fill our heart and head with affirmation or whatever it might be. The desire is always to make us more like Jesus. And that's what we find in our text. His heart is to bless the pilgrim, but his heart is to perfect the pilgrim. He says no good thing will he uh, withhold from them. And he doesn't say from them that know him, although he could have said that. He does not say from them that are called by his name, although he could have said that. But he said from them that walk uprightly. In other words, God says this, that uh, if you'll live for me, I'll give you every blessing that I can that won't be a, a burden to you. I'll try to pour everything in your life that I can that won't hinder you from living for me. And I would say that in our lives, God desires to bless us in the greatest possible way. And then I would notice verse number 12. We'll say a word about this be done tonight. He says this, O Lord of hosts. This is a simple statement. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in me. Now, we've, we've seen the pilgrims cry back in verse 9. Look upon the face of thine anointed. We've seen his clarity. A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. We've seen the pilgrims' confidence in the Lord's hand. The Lord God is, is a sun and shield and in his help he'll give grace and glory and in his heart no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. But this last verse, this simple statement, I think reveals to us the pilgrims' contempt. 
We have no reason to believe that a single thing has changed from the beginning of verse one, from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm. As far as we know, he's still on his journey. As far as I know, there's still danger that lays ahead. As far as I know, he still has a great many needs that God has to meet so that he can get there. But by the time he closes this psalm, here's what he's saying. He's saying it's a blessing just to trust God. I see the pilgrim's contentment. He's content with some things. That doesn't mean everything's the way he wish it was. But it means that he ain't mad at God for the way things are. And he's satisfied with what Jesus is doing in his life. What's he content with? Well, I notice that name he uses. And I don't think that's by accident. He says, O Lord of hosts. Now, this name is used of God as reflects his relationship to his people Israel in the Old Testament. What, what it's saying is that he is the God of this great company of people. That He is the one that leads them. That He is the one that guides them. That He is the one that directs them. He's the pillar of fire by night. He's the pillar of cloud by day. He's the one that guides their footsteps. And it sort of sounds to me like what He's saying is that He's content with God's governance. He's saying the Lord is the Lord of hosts. He's the master of His people. And I'm one of His people. And it's almost like He's saying, you know, I'm okay with that. It'll be a great day of victory in, in our life when we're willing to let God be God. Mankind expends so much senseless energy in trying to be God in God's place. Sometimes it's done maliciously with a fist shaking at God in anger. Sometimes it's done in a misguided way, just thinking we can, we can get things in better condition than God has and we can do a better job than God has. But it will be great peace in our life the day we realize that God is God and not us. And if we'll let Him be the one that governs our life, we'll have peace from it. So he's content with God's governance. He says, you know, you're the Lord of hosts and, and I'm okay with that. I'm glad for that. I, I have peace in that that you know what you're doing in my life. And then I see he's content with God's guidance. He says, blessed is the man that trusteth in me. Trusteth in me. What does it mean? It means to walk in his footsteps. It means to do what he asks of you and to trust that he'll take care of everything else. Blessed is the man that trusteth in me. You know what he learns? He learns that God blesses those that trust him. But he also learns that it's a blessed thing simply to trust Him. Tis so sweet, the songwriter said, trust in Jesus. You know, sometimes the greatest thing God does in our life is not at the beginning and it's not at the ending. It's in the duration. It's in the journey. It's what God's doing in our life through that experience. And the psalmist, as he comes to the close of that psalm, here's what he says, man, I'm blessed just to trust God, just to experience this relationship of God being my God and my Lord and my Master and my Savior and me being His creature and His child and, and His servant and His pilgrim and me just walking along and knowing that God's got this all under control. I think we're going to kick ourselves when we get to heaven and look back at all the energy we wasted living in constant worry and fear and fretting and anxiety over things that God had a pretty good grip on already. <laughs> and He does, you know, He does. He's got a good grip on everything. And I wonder if we ain't going to get to heaven and look back at it and say, you know, I spent all them sleepless nights worrying about something that God already had worked out. Spent all that time worrying over things that really wasn't mine to worry over anyway, uh, bigger than what I could have touched or changed or, or molded or shaped. And it was really it was things God always had in control. And I just should have trusted Him with those things because He's never let me down. He's never failed me. I want to be that kind of a pilgrim in my life. I want to be the type that longs and desires for the presence and fellowship of God. And I believe in our life we are pilgrims. That's what we are. That's, that is our station. That is part of the Christian experience. But I wonder if we view ourselves that way. 
For if we view ourselves as permanent residents that have laid our foundations in this world and are seeking to it for our contentment and peace and joy. I'll tell you this, you won't find any peace and joy in this world. You won't find any peace in this world. You won't find any contentment in this world. You won't find it here, but you'll find it in the Lord. I can report to you tonight that He satisfies. He satisfies. You'll give your heart and life to Him. He satisfies. You'll live for Him. He satisfies. All this world has won't, but He does. You say, oh, preacher, you just, you know, you ain't never been through what I've been through. You ain't never, Listen, maybe I haven't, but God's been through everything you've been through. And beyond that, there's folks everywhere around that's been through what we've been through. And they found that Jesus satisfies. I'm telling you, He's enough tonight. He satisfies. Look to Him. Let Him be your peace and your joy and your strength. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. And if God's spoken to your heart, I, I want you to come and meet God in this altar. What I mean by that is to come and pray and talk to Him and let Him speak to your heart and your mind and uh, let Him have His will and His way. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son. Lord, we love You tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name.